My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually forget to say that, so now you all know who I am. A few announcements this morning. If you're interested in coming and being a part of any of our prayer groups that are here at Calvary Napa, we currently are uh, running three Sunday morning at 9.15 before service, both men and women gathering to pray uh, for the church and for the Sunday service. Mondays at noon, that's also both men and women. I know for some of you that work, that's going to be impossible. So Tuesday at 7 p.m., we have the men's prayer group, and all those groups meet here at the church. If you go onto the website and take a look at the calendar, the times and locations will be posted there for all this stuff, so you can't forget, and there's no excuses. And then um, we're also going to be If you're looking for opportunities to serve, we're going to be looking to continue to build a small team to serve at the food bank this coming week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 8 to 11 a.m. Not sure if that's going to be ongoing or not, but if you want any information on that, please go and see Pastor Aaron. Where is he? Uh, Okay, he's somewhere. Awesome. (laughs) So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the mornings, 8 to 11, we're going to be serving at the Napa Food Bank, helping pack boxes and all that good stuff. And I'm looking toward the back and the front here, and I see some kids here today. I just want to let all of you families know, and for those of you watching from home, that we want you all to be here. Uh, We are a family here at Calvary Napa, and that includes the kids. And although we can't operate the children's ministry at full capacity right now, um, there will come a time when that will come back, but for the time being, we want you all to come. Don't be shy. Um, as long as they don't run onto the stage, we should be all good. And with that, we're going to have a very special women's ministry announcement from Jessica Rainey. Good morning, church. Um, Tuesday, September 22nd, we will be starting the next women's Bible study. That's it. It's uh, through the book of First Peter. It's only nine weeks, so we'll be meeting Tuesday, uh, September 22nd at 6.30 here. So you will do the the work throughout the week, and then we'll watch like a 30-minute teaching by Jen Wilkin, and then have a discussion time. So we should be done before 8 o'clock. So I'm asking for the women who have been participating in the Bible studies at this church for many years, please come and join us, because the Lord wants to use you in this church body to minister to other women. And if you've never done a women's Bible study before, this is a great opportunity. We're going to learn a lot about God. The way that this is structured, you will have read through the book a handful of times by the time we're finished with it. So we're going to learn about the Lord, about how he's preserved the gospel, and what the Bible has to say about being a Christian uh, when you are in persecuted times or when you live in a society that is hostile to you. I think that's an important message for us right now. Husbands, please uh, make the sacrifice once a week for your wives to be able to come. If that means watching the kids or encouraging her to participate each week, it's only nine weeks. So it's feasible. I'm really excited to see what the Lord is going to do. We are in the process of figuring out if we can Zoom in some attend. Uh, people attending to, but for the time being, we will be meeting here and showing the video and watching as a group. So if you need help uh, getting the book, let me know. I'll get you a book. Otherwise, it's on Amazon, so this gives you plenty of time to order. And if you have any questions about it, you can talk to me after the service. Thank you. Okay, and with that, let us pray before we begin and open up God's Word today. Father, thank you. 
Lord, that everything we do here is a work that you have begun. Lord, thank you that you are mighty and powerful to save, that you are building your church here, and you've invited us into your glorious plan. Father, I thank you for this family here at Calvary Napa. Lord, the testimony that you've put in each of these people's hearts of your greatness, your mercy, your grace, and your faithfulness, God. Thank you, Lord, that you gave everything. You gave your only son to suffer the penalty for our sins on our behalf, God. And how can we do anything else but return that generosity uh, to our fellow men and women? I ask that you'll bless the teaching of your word today, Father, that you will speak through Pastor Rob, that you'll soften our hearts, Father, to receive your word, to understand it, God, and to apply it to our lives. So we ask that your spirit would be upon us now, Father, and that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be talking about submission today. Biblical submission. You know what biblical submission is? It's when Jesus puts you in a headlock until you tap out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So submission, it's, it's not a, a light topic. It's not something that people love to talk about or love to do. Uh, just be, be straight with you. I think we all know that. And I feel like it's just been week after week. First, it's, you know, predestination, then election, now submission. So honestly, maybe next week I'll do something a little lighter. Maybe we can talk about hell or something like that, you know. <laughs> but uh, this is such an important topic. It, it really is. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine on the way to the church this morning, and he was just telling me if it weren't for submission and him having submitted to the Lord, he wouldn't be where he is today. And I know so many of us know this to be true. And so this is just such a relevant topic. And this particular text is dealing with submitting to the governing authorities, submitting to the government. And remember, we're in a very practical portion of Romans now. Chapters 1 through 11 were very theological. Talks an awful lot about God, God's nature, His character, His works. And then when we get into chapter 12, he says, therefore, we're to surrender ourselves to him entirely, to, to uh, bow the knee to him in worship and in service. And then he begins to get very practical about spiritual gifts and just different little uh, words of wisdom on how to love without hypocrisy and how not to um, seek vengeance when we're wronged, but to trust it into the, the Lord's hands who is totally just and just a lot of practical stuff. So that's where we are as we pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. He's going to talk about submission, submitting to the governing authorities, which was a very relevant and practical message for the Christians of that day because Rome was in power. Rome had conquered much of the known world, and Rome would allow people to continue to conduct government and religion and business as they would normally, but they would uh, put heavy taxation on them and require them to, to honor Caesar as sovereign. And this was a heavy burden for a lot of people. And so uh, it would be essentially like another government coming in here and allowing us to continue to function as we desire to do. But now we have to pay taxes out of our pocket to that government, which is not even our own government. And so you could imagine how, how frustrating, how angry uh, you would be to, to have to do something like that. And so Paul is, is addressing 
this issue, and he says that they're ultimately to submit, submit themselves to the, to the governing authorities. Very practical. Now, let me also say I've really not have, I have not been looking forward to this text because in the last several months, this text has really risen to the top, and a lot of people have been debating about this very text as it pertains to the restrictions that our government has placed on us in a variety of ways. And so people would say, well, the Bible says that we should honor and submit to the governing authorities, and we have certainly sought to do that. I've talked about this very thing from the pulpit time and time again. But then the question is, at what point is the government going too far? Because there is a time when we don't submit, and I'm going to talk about that today too, so just know that. And so the debate has been, when do we decide to do that which the government has told us not to do? And so everyone has a conviction, everyone has an, an opinion about that, and it's not my intention to get into that today. Okay? It's not my intention to, to talk about whether masks are unconstitutional or or just anything as it pertains to the restrictions of the government. And so just know that. I know maybe some people were hoping I was going to throw down the gauntlet and, you know, we were going to lead an uprising today, but that's not my intention. And I want to talk very broadly about biblical submission. The Bible has so much to say about it, and it's something that we all have to, have to deal with in our lives. We have to submit on some level. We need to submit on some level. And so as we're working our way through this text, that's the immediate context, uh, but I'm also going to talk a lot about other areas of biblical submission because it is such a, an important topic. So this is somewhat of a mix between a verse-by-verse study through verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to ask some additional questions and make some, some broader statements and deal with the issue of submission as it comes up in other verses of the Bible. So I just want to tell you where we're going before we go. Does that make sense? You guys ready? All right. Father, would you just bless our study in the Word right now as we dig in unto your glory, Father, and to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So verse 1 of chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So every soul is to be subject to the governing authority. So what exactly does this mean, to be subject? Well, oftentimes we'll use the word submit, but it comes from a, a Greek word, hupotasso, and it's a compound word, and it means under and arrange, to arrange yourself underneath. And so when dealing with submitting to God, that is to arrange ourselves underneath the Lord's authority and His plan to submit to the Lord. And so that's the idea of this word subject. And we're told here that we're to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. Webster's Dictionary defines it as to yield oneself to the authority or will of another, to defer or consent to abide by the opinion of another. And so that's simply what it is. It's to defer to somebody else's opinion, to step aside and to allow the other party to lead, right? And so we, we understand that. It's, it's very simple. It's, it's very basic. And oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where there are many opinions, there are many, many ideas and thoughts about how, how we should proceed, and it's to essentially step aside and to allow one person to make the call. And so that is to submit to the opinion or the will or the preference of another. And that, that is simply what it is. 
Well, Paul's basic point here to the Christians in Rome, because that's who he's writing to, is that we are not a bunch of religious zealots commissioned by God to overthrow the government. Because that was a real thing. Uh, within the Jewish community, there were guys known as zealots. In fact, one of the disciples of Jesus, Simon, was a zealot. And so they saw themselves as commissioned by God to overthrow Rome through acts of terror. So they were essentially religious terrorists. And this side note, it's interesting to me that one of these guys would be a disciple of Jesus. And we know Matthew was a tax collector uh, of the disciples. And so these guys would be like arch enemies. Yet Jesus was able to do such a work in the hearts of these men that they were able to be unified in Christ. But that's essentially what Paul is talking about. And he said, there's no place for that in the church. We are not religious zealots. We are not terrorists commissioned by God to overthrow the government. We are called by God to submit to the government. And so we are to, to be salt. We are to be light. We're to influence uh, as we are serving the Lord and loving Him and loving others and allow that to influence the culture around us. And that was the idea. It was never the church's place to overthrow the practices of the day. That could never work. The church was such a minority, and they would have just been stomped out instantly. And so that's kind of the idea here. And, and really, the point I think that Paul is also making is, is that government is a good thing. Government is a good thing. We need government. Because the reality is, is that we are all capable of being a lot worse than we actually are. Did you know that? Do you believe that? It's true. It's, it's honestly God's common grace that this world is not as bad as it could be. And one of the ways in which God does accomplish that is through government, through authority, through law enforcement. It is a government, it's, a, it's an institution ordained of God that, that does bring restraint and Jesus talks about this very thing. That's why Jesus said that if you do something in your heart, you're just as guilty uh, as if you had done it in, in actuality, if you had really done it, because you would do it. If you would, if you would sin in your heart, then you would do it if you had the opportunity. And that's why we need government, because if the opportunity arose, we would be a lot worse than we are. If we were left to ourselves without any authority or restraint, we would. And so government is a good thing, and that's what Paul is trying to say. We need to be lights and be salt in the midst of it. We need to submit to the government, recognize it as a gift of common grace from God, and we're not trying to oppose or overthrow the government. So I would like to say, first question, why are we called to submit biblically? Why, why is it? that God calls us to be submissive people. Well, we're told here in the text that because all authority has been appointed by God. Authority is put in place by God Himself. Now, that's hard for us to understand sometimes, is it not? Sometimes we look at certain authority figures and think of the atrocities that have been committed, and we say, could that really have been put in place by God? The reality is, is that government, authority, structure, headship is something that God has ordained. And the people that are in a place of leadership and a place of authority will have to answer to God for how they led. Now, some people don't even know that. Some people don't realize that. They may even reject that. But they will have to stand before God for how they led, for, for the authority that was given to them, that was entrusted to them. 
And that is a, a scary thing to consider. And so they'll be judged for how they lead, but we will be judged for how we followed. And so as it pertains to submission and, and you recognize who are the leaders in your life, to know that that's a very heavy and holy thing and that they have to answer to the Lord for how they led. So we want to encourage them and allow them to do so without grief from us because we don't have to answer to God for how we lead. They do. But we will be accountable for how we allowed them to lead, how we followed or submitted to the leadership of the authorities that God has put into place. And so just know that. That's a very important thing to, to be aware of. Because sometimes you think, this is not fair, I don't like that, I don't agree with that. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not right. Maybe, maybe it's not smart. Maybe it is a dumb idea. Maybe, maybe it will cause some kind of problem. That person will have to answer for how they led, but you will have to answer for how you followed, for how you submitted. And so we recognize submission is an important thing. Now, without order, what is there? Chaos. chaos. If we don't have order, we have chaos. And we know that God is a God of order and not chaos. And so he has, he has created structure in many different ways. Let me put it another way. There cannot be two heads. There cannot be two heads, all right? And so we, we get that. Or three heads, okay? That that's, would never work. So in any, any leadership, any organization, whether it's in the home, in the church, whatever the case may be, there has to be someone who is essentially leading. And so I, I knew a guy many, many years ago. He was in a, in a business he and another young man started, and it was a 50-50 partnership, and they were Christians, and uh, the, the older gentleman really had this conviction before the Lord that that cannot be. It's not the biblical way to go about this. There had to be one guy who essentially had the authority, and so he went to the other business partner and, and expressed this and said, so I'm asking you if you would forfeit a percentage of the company to me because he was older, more experienced, more mature in the Lord. Well, the younger guy said, no way. You know, are you crazy? And I could understand, you know, why he would feel that way or say that. Well, the older man forfeited a percentage of his, his part over to the younger guy. He made good on what he, he felt was uh, truly a conviction and so the, the younger guy became uh, the, the leader, if you will. And so in the course of time, the older guy that had given a percentage over, his wife had left him, left him with, with the kids, and um, there, there was going to be a, a divorce, and the, the bank was concerned that in so doing, she might end up getting a, a portion of the company. And so the other business owner in the bank got together and figured out a way to force this guy out of the company. And that's exactly what happened. And so he was trying to honor the Lord. He was trying to do what he thought was right biblically, and he did, even at a cost. He ended up being pushed out of the company that he helped start. People told him, hey, you should sue this guy. And he refused to do that because he said the Bible says Christians aren't supposed to sue each other. First Corinthians, we know this. People thought he was crazy, but he submitted himself to the Lord. Uh, once again, he submitted himself to the Word of God. Well, fast forward, he started a new company. It's thriving. It exists even today. God's blessing has been on it every step of the way. The other business went under. Uh, it, it no longer exists. Because this guy honored the Lord all the way through. He submitted himself 
to the Lord. He submitted himself even to this younger man. And then when he was burned because of it, he continued to submit himself to the Lord. And God has blessed him. All because he understood there can't be two heads. There can't. Someone has to lead. He understood and was willing to pay a price to honor the Lord in biblical submission. So who is called to submit? Who is called to submit? Well, it tells us here in this text, every soul. Every soul. That is all people without exception. Everyone has to submit to somebody on some level. We realize this. In life, it's inescapable. Now, the Bible gives us a whole list of ways in which people are to submit one to another. First and foremost, Christians are called to submit to God, right? James 4, 7 says that we are to submit ourselves to God. Ephesians 5 says that wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 6 says that children are to submit to their parents. Hebrews 13, 17 says that church members are to submit to their pastors. Ephesians 5 says Christians are to submit one to another. 1 Peter 2, again, says that Christians are to submit to government. I would add to that, students have to submit to their teachers, employees to their employers, military, law enforcement, always to the superior officer. It's just, it is the world that we live in. It's the way that it is. No one escapes submission, ever. Even people that are at the top have to submit to somebody. So a business owner, for instance, you might ask, well, who does he have to submit to? Well, he has to submit to the customers, ultimately, if he wants to stay in business. And I saw this firsthand. I worked at a company where the customers could be quite demanding at times to the employer, and he would, he would give in to their demands, and we as the employees would think, man, why is he doing that? He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to take that. But you know, when times got hard and business dried up and we still had business, it's because he was willing to do what the customers asked of him. And you know why he did it? For his employees. Because what was on his mind was that he had employees who depended upon him, who had families to support. And so he submitted himself to his customers for the sake of his own employees. And he didn't have to do that. He was set up. He had a he had a, a nice bank account, but he looked out for the, the good of his own employees, and he submitted to customers. That was wisdom. That was love. That was humility. He was willing to submit to others for the sake of his own people. And so even as a pastor here, you know, our church is set up in such a way, Calvary Chapel, that the senior pastor is able to make the deciding decision, if you will, the final decision in matters, even if the other elders don't agree. Now, we have never functioned that way. We don't. We function as a plurality of elders, and so we move forward unanimously on all that we do. But if I wanted something bad enough, I could do that. But you know, I don't do that. I never have because I could get my way, but I would lose my elders. I would lose their respect. I would lose their trust. If I pull them out into a situation that they didn't want to be in, then I would lose my guys. And so I submit to my elders and, and decisions that we make for the church at times. And so the point I'm trying to make is this is just a part of life. In wisdom and humility, we are called to be submissive people, especially before the Lord. Submission is by God's design. Submission is by God's design. As I said, God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order and structure. He has given us a biblical structure. 
God loves it when we submit because that is humble. It's, it's humility, and that, that is a, a godly thing, and we know that God opposes what? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And submission is a, a real-life act of humility. But you know what? It's even reflected in the Trinity. Biblical submission, it's reflected in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so he says that, God has set it up in such a way. He has instituted the family structure. We're going to talk more about this in a moment. But that the husband is to be the covering, the head of the wife of the home. But Christ is the head of the, of the man, and God is the head of, of the Son, of Christ. And so this, this headship, this authority structure, we see it even within the Godhead, even within the Trinity. And Jesus made this crystal clear that he had submitted himself to the will of the Father over and over again. He would say things like John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. John eight twenty nine, And he who sent me is with me, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Man, if, is that not, I mean, what Christian doesn't wish they could say that? I only do the things that please Him. We know that's the cry of our heart, but we fall so short of that. But that was Jesus' mission here on earth. He came to do only that which the Father sent Him to do. To do only that which was pleasing to the Father. The Son had submitted Himself to the Father. And so, that brings me kind of to the next question I would ask. Is submission some kind of demeaning or degrading thing? Is biblical submission some kind of a demeaning or degrading act? Because a lot of people think that it is. They hear that word submission, submit, and to them it's synonymous with that very thing. But let me tell you, it is not a matter of inferiority or superiority, ever. It's not. It's not a matter of being inferior, uh, in, in essence, somehow being um, demeaned, as I said. That's not the idea at all, because do you think that the Father would demean His Son? Would the Father ever demean the Son, Jesus, degrade Him? Absolutely not. He loved His Son. He loves His Son. And he would not do that. So that's not what submission is at all. And let me just say this. You know, in Genesis, God took, took the rib from Adam's side and he made woman. So woman came from man. And he said that this was going to be man's helper, that the woman was going to be the man's helper, right? You know that story. You're familiar with it. That, that word is literally essential counterpart. That is to, to say that they, they complete each other. The one that comes alongside the man, the two become one flesh and they become one person. It is in no way degrading. Now, the woman is called the helper to the man, but you know who else in the Bible is called a helper? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called our helper. Now, is he being degraded? Is that demeaning of the Father to call the Holy Spirit the helper? 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so, as I said, God oftentimes takes two people who couldn't be more different. One is strong in certain areas, and the other is strong in other areas, and they come together and they complete each other, and they make one person. And so, um, it's a beautiful thing, and it's, it's a glorious thing that God has instituted, and, and it is um, in no way a degrading thing. You know, the woman helps the man because, man, men need help in the worst way, right? I needed help. And so God blessed me when He gave me a, a helper comparable to me. And we come together and we make one flesh, one person. And that was all God's doing. So having said that, we at Calvert Chapel are what you would call complementarian. We are complementarian. So we believe that, that God has instituted leadership in the home, the family, the institution of family, and that the husband is to be the, the head of the home. He is to, to lead the home according to God's will and God's heart, God's precepts. And the wife and the children follow the, the husband's lead. And that's called complementarianism. They complement one another. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. God loves it. And, uh, you know, we're told that that even is a picture of Christ and the church, you know. And so it's a, as the husband and wife come together, and so it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. You know, the world looks at that and, and they think that's a terrible thing. Or, or maybe even people within the church sometimes hear that and they wince at it. But the reality is that that is God's design. God's design. You tracking with me? You mad with me yet? All right. Verse 2. We'll pick up the pace now. At, uh, I spent a lot of time on verse 1. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So if we resist earthly authority, we are essentially resisting heavenly authority, is what is being said here. And so, ultimately, our submission, whoever it is that we're submitting to, is submission to God directly. This is a key biblical principle, and it is applied in a number of ways. All that we do is what? For the glory of God. Whatever our hands find to do, we are doing it as though we are doing it for the Lord Himself. So, in the workplace, in the home, in the community, whatever the task is before you, whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it like you're doing it for the Lord. So I've had jobs in the past that I hated, and, you know, it was tedious, monotonous, and, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here building something. And, I, you know, you try to have the mindset, I'm building this like I'm building it for Jesus. Like, Jesus is my employer, He is my boss, and I'm going to be presenting this to Him personally and directly. What does that do when you have that mindset? You're going to do the best you can possibly do, right? You're not going to cut corners. You're not going to slack. You're not going to complain about it. You're going to do the best you can do. And the same is true with submission. We recognize God has placed authority in our lives. And when we submit to the authorities, we're ultimately submitting to God himself. And that changes things. That changes our perspective. That is like worship to the Lord, when we recognize that whatever we're doing, we're doing it ultimately for Him. So when we submit, we are to do so as though we are submitting to God Himself. So let me ask you this question. Why is it so hard for us to submit? 
What is it about us that makes submission so hard? Because let's be honest with ourselves. If somebody expresses some kind of displeasure or they ask us to do something we don't want to do or we don't think, you know, we, whatever, I mean, we, there's something in us that is resistant to that. We can't just do it. You know, like in, in years past, you know, maybe like at another church, my pastor would say, could you fix the chairs in the sanctuary? You know, what, what do you think would be the immediate response? Well, I didn't mess the chairs up, you know, and it's not my fault. And so it's like, I didn't need you to, to explain to me that it wasn't your fault. I just needed you to fix the chairs. I didn't say that it was your, your fault. And so that's the kind of thing that, that we naturally do. And so just so long as you understand that I wasn't the one that did it. Well, I didn't need to hear that. Just fix the chairs. And so that is what is in us. You know, the Bible says that we are rebels by nature. We are rebels by nature. We do not like to answer to other people. We just don't. And, you know, we see this with children, do we not? And that's something that, that is ever before me right now. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, what is, what is natural to them is to say no and to throw tantrums and to say mine and so on and so forth. But you have to train them to say, yes, Mommy, yes, Daddy. You have to train them not to throw temper tantrums, right? Because we are by nature rebels, and we see it from the youngest age. Because you know what? We want to do what we want to do. Don't we? We want to do what we want to do. And you know what else? We don't, we don't want people telling us how to do it, and we know how things ought to be done, right? We know how things ought to be done, don't you? You know how it could be done better. You know, that might be a true statement in certain situations. You may know how things ought to be done. I tell you, everywhere I have ever worked, I, can, I think I can say this with confidence. Every place I've ever worked, I look at other people in the company, and they know how to run the company better than the owner, better than the boss. And they'll just, they can't, they'll tell you all about it every day. If they were running this company, they'd do this, and they would do that. And it's like, man, you would be better than the owner would be if you had the opportunity because that's what is in us. We, we don't like being told what to do. We want to do what we want to do. We know how things should be done if we had the chance. And like I said, that could be true. That could be a true statement. You might know how things should be done. But remember what I said. We are called by God. We are judged by God on how we submit to the person who is in charge. They might make a stupid decision. They might mess up. They'll have to deal with the consequence of that here and before the Lord. But we're called to, to submit, to step aside, to defer to them, to make it easy on them, and to make it a painless thing by simply honoring them in the position that they are in. Verse 3, moving on in the text, it says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So here he's talking about the government. I just want to make that clear. The government, the, the governing authorities, law enforcement, they are God's ministers set in place. 
to bring consequence, to execute wrath against those who break the law, that, that doesn't translate perfectly over into other arenas like church and, and the home and, and stuff like that. So let me just make that clear. But the idea here is that even the authority figures are God's servants set in place to try to bring about order and to even bring consequence to the matter if if people were to break the law. So that's the idea in government. The Bible even says that, the, that those in charge are his servants, his ministers sent to execute judgment. And so it says if you obey the authorities, then you will avoid consequence. And now, I mean, this is just logic, really, in life. If you break the law, you're going to get arrested. And if you don't, then you won't. Things will go generally well for you if you're a good, tax-paying, law-abiding citizen. And we know that those things have breakdowns at times in different places, but that principle generally is true. If you will obey the governing authorities and do what is asked of you, it will go well for you, and conversely, it will not. And so we're to obey for the sake of consequence, to avoid consequence, but we also obey for the sake of obedience to God, that your conscience may not be defiled. Again, it's kind of back to that place. We do what we do ultimately as unto the Lord for the sake of Christian conviction and conscience because it's not, it's not this per person that is right in front of you. It's the Lord ultimately that we are submitting to and surrendering to. And so being submissive reflects Christ. That's why it's so important to, to submit. It reflects Christ, and it is pleasing to God. You know, not being submissive, being obstinate, being cantankerous. I just love those words. You know, if, if that defines you or describes you, that is a terrible witness for Christ. Have you ever heard of a sovereign citizen? Maybe you haven't. I had not. I used to work at a courthouse in Tennessee, and there was a picture of a guy on the wall, and it said, if you see this guy you know, be careful. He's a, he's a sovereign citizen. So this, this is a group of, of men and women in the United States of America who would say that they are outside of the law. They're not subject to the law of this land. And so any kind of law that might be enforced towards them, they reject that. Uh, that doesn't apply to them. And they find all kinds of weird and bizarre ways to get out of it and to reinterpret the law and then to make life really hard and painful on people if they get on their bad side. So I, this particular guy had gotten pulled over for speeding, and uh, the cop pulled him over and told him what he had done, and he said that he interpreted that sign in a totally different way. And he said that that sign to him meant how, how much drugs he could ingest in that particular zone. And so that's obviously a very strange thing, and, you know, there's this back and forth, and, well, the guy... He knew how to work the law really well, and it cost a lot of money, but he figured out a way to get a bunch of liens put on everyone's houses in the court there. And so I knew some of the people personally that had liens put on their house by this guy. And so um, ultimately, long story short, he ended up getting 20 years in prison for that stunt. And so he was not a sovereign citizen. He thought he was above the law, but in the end, the law... The law won. The law prevailed in that guy. But you know what? Christians can be like that. Christians so often can act just like that. I'm a sovereign citizen. I don't have to do that. That doesn't apply to me. I don't, I don't agree with that. I interpret that a different way. 
And that is so unbecoming. That, is, that does not reflect the humility of Christ. That does not reflect the submissive nature of our Lord and Savior, the one that we claim to belong to. So we don't want to be like that guy. We don't want to be like that sovereign citizen. We are a citizen of heaven, to be sure, but we're told that we are also citizens here, and we are to reflect the humility of Christ and to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. So not only the government, but whatever establishment, whatever place that you find yourself under the leadership of another. We are to be humble and submissive people because that reflects Christ. That's why it is so important. You know, you're going to have conflict and roadblocks all throughout life if you can't get this. This is something that I learned early on, and, I, and I'm not going to say that I've got it down, you know, but I've watched so many other men and women over the years who just could not get, they could not move forward in life because they could not submit. You know, it was always a fight, just always fighting against other people and unwillingness to do what was asked of them and unwillingness to just do what was right in front of them. Uh, just absolutely got to have it their, their way. They have to do it their way. And where are they now? I mean, they've, they've never gone anywhere that I know of these particular people I'm thinking of. So I've, I've seen it in my own life. And that is just a very real principle. If you cannot submit yourself to authorities, ultimately to God Himself, if you can't submit to the Lord and submit to those around you, life is just going to be hard. You're never going to get anywhere. And so God knows this. And God has, has helped us, instructed us through His Word that submission is so very important. So then my, my next question when is submission truly submission? When is submission truly submission? I would say it's when you really don't agree with it. Otherwise, it's easy. Is it really submitting when, when you want to do it, when you agree with it, when you're just so sure that it is the right way to go, the right thing to do? It's when you don't want to. It's when you don't desire to do it. When it's hard when it's challenging, when everything in you is saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. That's when it really counts. That's what submission is. Maybe even when it's unfair. Now, I'm not going to, not when it's unethical. I'm going I'm to talk about that at the end of the message. There is a point in time where someone can go too far. So just know we're going to talk about that. But even when you think it's not fair, even when you think it's not fair. Well, you know what? Jesus is the ultimate example of this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered... He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So Jesus was, was the innocent and spotless one, totally holy, totally just, totally righteous and pure. But he suffered for us. And when he was being reviled, when there were accusations, false accusations being hurled at him, what did he do? He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He submitted himself to the Father, the one who judges righteously. He came to do the Father's will. He came to die for us. We're told here that he bore our sin 
and his body on the tree there while he was being mocked and ridiculed and falsely accused. Remember, Pilate said, are you not going to say anything? Are you not going to speak? Don't you know that I have power of life and death over you? But Jesus didn't defend himself. Jesus did not return. He didn't revile back. Can I tell you something? That ain't fair. That was not fair, what happened to Jesus. He was the only one who could ever say, that ain't right, because he was innocent, totally innocent. He didn't deserve that. All those accusations that were being thrown at him, totally unjust. Have you ever been accused unjustly? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? You just want to fight back with everything that you've got, and that would be just to do so. He didn't do that. He trusted himself to the Lord, the one who judges righteously. He took those accusations. He took the beating. He took the mocking. He didn't fight back. He didn't defend himself. He went to the cross. He suffered the just for the unjust, our sins on himself, to submit to the will of the Father for the sake of us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Now that is submission. That is biblical submission. Jesus didn't deserve that. That was not fair, but he did that for our good. When we were enemies, separated from God, dead in sin, no way seeking after God, living as rebels to God, quite happy to do so, Jesus died for us. He took our sin on himself on that cross, was mocked and ridiculed, but he went quietly in submission to the Father. And what, what does it say here? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow. That's the example that we have been left. We are to submit ourselves to the one who judges righteously, to the Father. And we are to be like our Savior, Jesus. Now that is the gospel right there, folks. That is the gospel through and through. The righteous one died the death of a sinner for sinners. He didn't deserve that. We deserved that, but we were rescued from that. If you trust in Christ, if you will call upon his name, if you will say that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross, the death that I deserved, he died that for me. And if you believe that in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and that he rose again from the grave, then you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. Your sins are paid for at the cross. And Jesus' righteousness is given to you as a gift. And you will be born again. And God will be your Father in heaven. And that's what it's all about. Jesus went through all of that. He submitted to the Father for our sake. We're moving on, verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Taxes, yay. You know, there's two things that are certain in life. You know what they are? Death and taxes. That's right. And so um, we're told here that we're to pay taxes, you know. We're to essentially support the God-ordained structure of government and leadership to receive protection and justice and to enjoy other benefits that come along with being a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen. And he says, therefore, you are to render what is due, taxes, fear, honor, 
to whomever it is due. Let me read this commentary to you. I think this really brings some light to, to uh, what taxes, what taxation looked like at this time. So it says, this was a difficult command. For most believers, the command caused anything but pleasure. For the taxes levied by the Roman government against its conquered nations were very heavy to bear. First, there was an income tax, 1% of a man's income. Secondly, there was a ground tax. A man had to pay one-fifth to one-tenth of the crops produced by the ground. He could make payment in money or actual crops harvested. Thirdly, there was a poll tax paid by everyone between the ages of 12 and 65. And this amounted to about one day's wage. Fourthly, there were also local taxes that had to be paid. There were import and export taxes. There were custom duties, including taxes for using main roads, crossing bridges, entering markets and harbors, transferring animals and driving carts or wagons. So this was a heavy burden. It was one that the people hated immensely, but this was what Rome put on them, and they were called to pay that tax. Even Paul said here that you're to do so. You're to honor those who are in, in charge, and you're to pay those taxes. So this leads me to kind of like my, my last question. Is there a time when we are not to submit? Is there a time when we are not to submit? Well, remember what I said, that when we submit, we do so as unto the Lord, right? Remember that? When we submit, we submit as though we're submitting to the Lord Himself. Well, there are times when we cannot submit to God and man simultaneously because what man is asking of us is not God's will, is not God's heart. And when those two things collide, we have a decision to make. We have to submit to the Lord and not to man. If you're ever put in harm's way, you don't have to submit to that. You know, in a, in a relationship, the, the husband has been given this awesome responsibility to lead his family well with love and tenderness and to, to be strong and to, to nurture the family. But if he's an abusive man, you don't have to submit to that. You need to get out of that, in fact out of harm's way. Uh, if someone is asking you to do something unethical in the job that you work at, you don't have to do that. You have to honor God. Sometimes those things conflict. If someone is asking or demanding you to do something that is contrary to God's law, then you don't do that. You have to submit yourself to God ultimately. And so we see this in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 4. I'll read this to you. The disciples were preaching Christ. Jesus rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven. They're preaching in power, and the authorities hated this. The authorities were the ones who had Jesus crucified. So they were warning the disciples to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And so chapter 4, verse 18, it says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They had to preach the gospel. They had to testify of what they had seen with Christ Jesus, the works of Christ, even if the authorities told them not to. So they did it anyway. In the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 26, it says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. 
Verse 29, this is Peter's response. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. We have to obey God rather than men. And so there comes a point when those two can collide. There can be conflict there. And brothers and sisters, you've got to know you have to obey God always. You don't submit when it is causing you to sin against God. And the disciples understood this very well. Let me read another text from the Gospels that I think really helps to illustrate this. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees, the ones that he was always kind of going to battle with, they were always looking for a way to trip him up, for a way to trick him. And so they came to him with this issue of taxes. And they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, they knew that if Jesus said yes, then the Jews would hate him because the Jews hated the taxation of the Romans. The very thing that I was just talking about, that quote that I read to you about those taxes that were being exerted on the people, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is that right? And if he said yes, the Jews would hate him. But if he said no, then he would be accountable before Rome and Caesar, and he could be in hot water for essentially trying to say that people should not pay tax to Rome. So they thought, we've got him. We've surely got him. So verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 17, it says, um, Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived the wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were speechless. They had nothing to say to that. And so he said, Look, show me, show me the money. Show me the currency. Whose picture is on it? Whose likeness? And they said, Caesar. And he said, Well, then give Caesar's what, what belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. But you need to give God what belongs to God. You need to give God yourself. You know, essentially the idea is whose image is on you? Whose likeness is on you? Whose image were we created in? God's image. So you have Caesar's image and you have God's image. Give Caesar's what is his. Give him the money, but you give yourself to God. And there cannot be a conflict there. We give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but if Caesar requires from us, us what belongs to God, then we refuse. We refuse. And you know, the Christians, our brothers and sisters from the very beginning understood this. One of the things that Rome did do was they expected the people to worship Caesar, Caesar worship. It wasn't, it wasn't some hard thing to do for the average person. You would just come in, you would take a little pinch of incense and throw it on this flame and say, Caesar is Lord, and you've done your duty. You're a, you've done your duty before Rome, you can go your way. But the Christians could not do it. They would not do it. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And they knew this, so they refused to do that. They rendered to God's what was God's. They would not give to Caesar what belonged to God, what belonged to Jesus. And they suffered in horrific ways because of it. In horrific ways. They were tortured and murdered in such gruesome ways. There are children in here. I won't go into it. I had planned on it. I'm trying to be family friendly here today. But that's just the reality of it, folks. They would not render to Caesar what belonged to God. And there is a time and a place, and we have to make that call. But typically, the Bible says that we are. We are to submit to 
the authorities in the government. We're to submit to the authorities in our life, whether it's in the home or the church or in the workplace or in school. We are to be a people marked by humble submission. We are rendering to God what belongs to God when we submit and serve those around us in humility. That is God's desire. That is God's heart, that we would be a submissive people, a gentle people, a humble people, a people that reflect the nature of Christ in submissiveness. Amen? And so let us be a people that are marked by humble love. Let us submit first and foremost to God. Maybe you haven't even submitted to God yet. Maybe you haven't even bowed the knee to Him. Maybe you haven't even said, God, I'm done running my own life. I don't know how it should be. That does not work for me, and I am going to obey you. I'm going to submit to you. If you haven't done that, that's where you start. That's where it starts. And so I would, I'm pleading with you, for those of you who are watching from home or in this room, if you haven't bowed the knee to God in humble submissiveness, please do so. Surrender to the Lord. Submit yourself to Him. But then know also in life, God has called us to be a humble people who submit to those authorities that God has placed in our life. It is pleasing to Him, and it will go well for us, and it reflects Christ in a lost and dying world. Truly, that is being salt and being light, because the world doesn't do that. The world does not, does not value that as great. But when we do, we are demonstrating something that's very foreign in this world, and we are reflecting the nature of Christ in so doing. Let me pray, and we will, uh, we will dismiss. Father God, we submit to you from our hearts, Lord. Would you have your way in our lives? May we do those things that are pleasing to you. I thank you, God, that you have given us the ultimate picture of submissiveness and that Jesus left his heavenly glory and came here and lived a hard life of humble obedience and service. He submitted himself to you, Father, all the way to the point of the cross, death on the cross. And then you, Lord, highly exalted him and gave him the name above every other name. At the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess to the glory of your name. And we praise you for that. So may we humble ourselves before you, God, and may we humble ourselves and submit to those whom you have called us to submit ourselves to. And would you bless us in that, God? We praise you, Lord. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. I thank you for these brothers and sisters of mine who have called upon the name of the Lord. And I just pray a special blessing upon them today and for this week. I just pray that you would encourage them in you. Lord, these are difficult and uncertain times that we are living in. And we need you, God. We need your steadfast love. We need your certainty. We need the uh, firm foundation of Christ Jesus and his work and his love for us. And so I pray for our church. I pray for all the families, Lord, in this church. I pray for all of those who are watching, God, that you would provide for all of their needs, for there are many, and they are diverse, God. There are health issues, financial issues, relational issues, and you know them all, God. You know them all. And so I just pray that you would do what only you could do and that you would provide and that you would bring support and that you would bring healing and that you would bring joy and encouragement for those who are struggling with depression and anxiety and fear, that you would bring calm, that you would bring peace, that you would bring joy. 
We look to You, Father. You are the only thing that is certain. And we trust in You, and we thank You. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and God bless.